Dear Father, as we come before you today, uh, truly we pray that as we come to your word, uh, it challenges us as it should, that it breaks our thinking uh, of uh, how things should be because it is your thought. And we just pray that through the Holy Spirit you will be able to keep us really focused on this word and to allow it to shape us, to uh, make us uh, who you want us to be. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, uh, what is the purpose of life? Uh, what am I meant to be doing with my life? Is there some role for me? Uh, what am I supposed to do with my time? Now, I wonder if you ever ask yourself those questions. You know, what am I supposed to do with my life? What does God want me to do with my life? Now, sometimes as a pastor, people come up to me and ask me those questions. And they are always uh, sort of looking for the sort of answer which sort of says, you know, God wants me to become a doctor or engineer. Or maybe God wants me to go to poly or uni. Or maybe uh, do something else. Or maybe I should be single or marry this person or not go out with this person. That's, that's what people have in mind when they say, does God have a plan for me? And I think that generally when we ask those questions, we ask in a very narrow way, right? What, what is God's plan for me? Uh, me, myself, and I. And I think that one of the great things that looking at the book of Revelation is that it takes us from the very me-centered, uh, small world, narrow way of looking at myself, and, and it sort of takes us back to look at God's big plan for the whole world. So the question that uh, we're looking at here when we look at Revelation is not what's God's plan for me, but what's God's plan for the whole world. And if I know what God is doing in the whole world and what He's doing in this time, then how do I fit in God's plan? Right? So not what, God, what is my my plan, but what is God's plan and how do I fit in His plan? And over the last uh, few weeks, we've been looking at the book of Revelation, that God has a plan for this world. Uh, and God has a purpose in this world. And He's uh, shown us this plan in a very symbolic, uh, metaphorical and figurative way, uh, by looking at uh, the opening of the seals in God's plan in the scroll, and also by looking at the trumpets. Okay, so the seals and the trumpets. And uh, basically, in a nutshell, the seals and the trumpets tell us that God's plan is all about how He's, he's judging the world now, today, in a series of mini-judgments, in a, in a series of small ways, but it is all leading up to a big ultimate judgment where the whole world will be judged uh, for whether they belong to God or not. Okay, so if you have a look up here on the slide, just to refresh your memory, okay, so we looked at the seven seals, and the seven seals looks at how God is doing these mini-judgments by letting human wickedness and evil uh, rule the world and cause suffering. Okay, so the first four horsemen, and then uh, the fifth seal, the persecuted Christians, and then the, the sixth seal, the day of the wrath of the Lamb, and the seventh seal, which we say was silence before God's judgment. And in the same way, next slide, uh, we saw the, the six trumpets over the last few weeks, where God, instead of... Uh, doing a series of mini-judgments of the world based on human wickedness, uh, blows these trumpets which show the natural world turning against humanity. Okay, and, uh, and we saw that the natural world was turning against itself in terms of the land, the sea, uh, the, ocean, uh, the rivers, and the sky. And then the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet was where uh, there were these uh, great sort of horrific uh, pictures of how God was going to torment and bring death to those who didn't follow him. Now, the reason why we want to see this in a nutshell is because they're actually uh, a bit linked, right? Because, in the next slide, you'll see that when we did the seven seals, okay, this is why you have to concentrate, okay? When we did the seven seals, between the sixth 
and the seventh seal, there was a pause, or there was an interlude in the visions that God gave the uh, prophet John in the book of Revelation. And here, that's why there's a pause button and there's a timer, right? Because there's like this interlude, this interval, okay? There's a break in the vision. And we saw that God here gave a vision to John specifically for God's followers, for Christians, uh, as a form of reassurance. And where God said that He had sealed and protected His people during this time of mini-judgments and all the way to the very end. And that after the last judgment, the ultimate judgment, all the people that were sealed were saved. And in that sense, He was actually saying that Christians or people who belong to God have no need to fear from all these judgments. That they may suffer physically, they may suffer persecution, but ultimately, God will protect them and save them to the last day. So today, we see the same thing happening, which was read to us by Mark. Next slide. Okay, so we had the six trumpets last week, and now we come to a pause, an interlude, an interval. And in the same way, this same interval or interlude or pause is a, a, a way of God actually using uh, a break in the vision to speak to the Christians or the, the, the believers in the world and telling them how are they supposed to live or behave in the midst of these trumpets. How are they supposed to, to understand what their role is in this world when there is, uh, they're living in the time of the trumpets and the seals. Okay, so let's begin by looking at chapter 10 and seeing what he says during this interlude. Okay? So he sees this mighty angel which comes down from heaven and uh, this angel is uh, seen in a very... Um, uh, a fantastic way. Uh, he says here, he was robed in a cloud, there was a rainbow above his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars, and uh, he had a little scroll in his hand, and he planted his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the land. Now, some people, especially for those of you who have uh, done your Bible study, uh, would, would recognize that, you know, that this actually uh, reminds us a lot of Jesus, the power of Jesus. Okay, so if you look up here in chapter 1, Right, Jesus is described in the same way. He, his feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace. His face was like the sun shining as all is brilliant. Uh, which is very similar to what we see here with the angel right, in chapter 10. But, uh, to clarify, this angel is not Jesus. Okay, because nowhere in the Bible is Jesus ever called an angel. And also, uh, this uh, angel uh, is not worshipped. You know, everywhere else in the book of Revelation, whenever you see Jesus, he's worshipped. And also, the scroll in his hand is not a, a, a big scroll, which is what Jesus is carrying, but a little scroll. And it's also open, but not closed. But he's still a very mighty angel, right? Because he, he's got the power and the look of Jesus. And he's got his one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. And this shows you that actually, uh, this angel, his message spans the whole world. Because... When it says that the angel has a, a foot on the land and the sea, it's not like he's walking on the beach, right? And one foot is walking in the, in the water and the other one is on the beach. He's trying to say that this angel is so big that he can, he can walk uh, on both water and sea. He, 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 his, his, he can span both the whole world. So I remember this illustration that I heard saying, you know, this little boy was asking his uh, father, is it possible to be like in, say, Haogang and Changi at the same time? You can't, right? Because it's just... The different places, but if you are big enough, then yes, you can have one foot in Haogang and one foot in Changi because that's how big you are. But this is a picture of how big this angel is. You see, he's a really big angel and he's got this big message uh, to give 
to John. But in verse 4, a very interesting thing happens because uh, when the angel shouts, uh, something called the seven thunders spoke. And uh, John, it says that in verse 4, was about to write, but a voice from heaven said, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Now, uh, this is really interesting because it shows that all along, from one, chapter 1 to 9, uh, John uh, is writing down everything that he's seeing and listening, but then finally he sees something and God says, don't write it down. And I think that this is a very important lesson, right? Because it says that actually, we don't know everything about God, and we don't know everything about God's plan. And sometimes, it is just God's will for us not to know. So sometimes people come up to you and say, what does Jesus look like? Do you know what Jesus looks like? No, right? Uh, exactly when will Jesus come again? Um, what exactly do we do when we're in heaven? What do we look like in heaven? Uh, and, you know, um, things like that. And, and, and we have to ask ourselves, well, we don't so know because God has not revealed it to us. And here... He's revealed everything to us except what the seven thunders have told us. And this is very important because it shows that there are things that God wants us to know, which we have to do something with, and there are things that we are told that we don't need to know and we don't have to worry about. And here, it's very important because in verse 5 and 11, the, the angel tells us that we don't need to know what's happening with the thunders, but there is one thing that John needs to know and do something about, which is the little scroll. Okay, this little scroll is very important. And this is where we're going to focus on, okay, verse 5 to verse 11 of chapter 10. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea, on the land, the big angel, raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. And the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me once more, Go and take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, Take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Now, it begins by saying, he's saying, don't write down what the thunder said, but the angel says, there is no more delay. There is no more delay. Right? From now on, right, before the trumpet comes, the mystery of God will be accomplished. Now, what is not going to be delayed? Uh, what is going to happen now? Now, we always say, when we look at Revelation, when we look at any part of the Bible, context is the most important thing, right? Context, context, context. Okay, it's like uh, when you buy property, it's location, location, location. When you read the Bible, it is context, context, context. So the context here, remember, of the seals and the trumpets is all about judgment. Remember the little mini judgments leading to the big judgment. So what the big angel is saying is, there will be no more delay. The ultimate big judgment of God is going to come. And it will not stop anymore. It's going to come right now. 
And he's actually answering uh, the call of chapter 6, verse 9, right? Where uh, in the fifth seal, the, the dead Christians or the dead people of God, whether they're Jews or Gentiles, are crying out to God, how long before you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And the angel is replying, no more delay, judgment is coming. But you notice before the mystery of God is accomplished, before the judgment comes, John has a a job to do. He has a purpose in life. What is his purpose? He is to take this scroll, he is to eat this scroll, and then he is to prophesy. Now, uh, you would expect um, the angel to say, take the scroll and read the scroll, right? Uh, Because you sort of think, how can I take this book and eat it, right? But we... Remember, the, the book of Revelation is a very metaphorical and symbolic book. And what it's saying is, you know, when you, even in English, when you talk about eating, and it's about internalizing something, isn't it? It's not just reading, but you're taking it in. So sometimes when you say to me, uh, I can't accept what I just read, then you say, it's hard to swallow, right? Or let's say something is hard to understand, I need to chew it over. Or I read something very quickly, I read a book very quickly, you say, I devour a book. Or let's say uh, someone reads a lot of books. You call them a bookworm, right? So it's the idea of where he's not just meant to read it, he's meant to internalize it and take it into himself and to preach it to people. Now the funny thing about this scroll is that it is sweet, but it is also sour. Now please don't make the mistake in thinking it's like sweet and sour pork, okay? Where the sweetness is nice and the sour is nice. Okay, because the, the, the other translations say it's, it is sweet and bitter. Okay, there's no sweet and bitter pork, right? It means that there is a sweet part to the scroll, the little scroll, but there is another part to it which, when he swallows it, it is unpleasant. It is distasteful. It is offensive. It is disgusting, right, to him. Now, why is this little scroll both sweet and Bitter. Why is it sweet and sour? Well, because of the content of uh, the scroll, right? It's not because of the material of the scroll. It's not because, you know, the paper is a bit off or something, right? But because of the content of the message, as he eats it, he ingests it, he internalizes it, the message is both sweet and is also bitter. And that's because many people say that the little scroll it's actually like a little summary of the big scroll that Jesus has. You know, it's like the, you know, when students study for their uh, exams, right, and they don't want to read the whole book, they get the small cheat notes, the summary. It's a bit like that, you know. The little summary, the little scroll is like the little cheat note of the big, the big scroll. But also, some people say that the, the little scroll contains the message or the gospel about Jesus. And they're all linked together, right, because... The big scroll was also about Jesus coming to judge and to save his people, but it also is about the gospel. Because later on in the book of Revelation, um, oh, next slide, next slide, don't worry about this one, yep. It says, he's, John is told to prophesy about this scroll. But in, um, in Revelation chapter 19, it says, the testimony of Jesus right, is the spirit of prophecy. So whatever John is prophesying about here in the little scroll, the main subject is about Jesus. So if you understand what's happening in the big scroll, and you understand the gospel of Jesus, 
So you recognize that there is a sweetness in the Bible and in God's plan, and there is a bitterness in God's plan. Because for people who accept the gospel, it's sweet, isn't it? Because it's about forgiveness, it's about salvation, it's about eternal life, it is about the blessings of God. But on the other side of, of that message, the gospel message, there is judgment, uh, there is God's wrath, there is repentance, the need of repentance of sin, uh, there is Satan and how he influences people's lives. So there's a, it's like a coin, you know, you get a coin from your pocket, right? There are two sides to the coin. Well, the, 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 the message of the little scroll on the gospel has two sides. There is a sweet side, the good news of salvation, but also the bad news of judgment and the rejection of God. And that's why the message always has two sides in the Bible. So you look up here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. It's a, this is a very um, well-known passage that I always re- remember, right? And it says exactly the same thing it says here in Revelation chapter 10. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. So through Christians we spread the knowledge of God. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and to those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death and to the other the fragrance of life. See, what a contrast that is, isn't it? It's like smelling a dead body and the smell of, you know, the nicest, most expensive perfume. It's like the sweet and the bitter. That's what the gospel and the plan of God is like. There's sweetness, salvation, forgiveness, blessing. But there is bitterness, judgment, hell, God's wrath. And John here is told that he is to keep preaching this until the seventh trumpet comes, until judgment day comes. And I think this is a really, really important application for us because the temptation for many Christians and churches today is we just want to preach the honey, right? Because people only want honey. Uh, they don't want the bitter. I mean, if you went to a supermarket, you only buy honey, right? You don't buy bitter stuff. And so, many churches and Christians, they just preach Good news, right? Blessings, forgiveness, positive news. But the problem is that it is meaningless when you're not actually obeying what God is telling you to do, which is to preach the honey, the sweet stuff, with the bitter, which is what the gospel is really about. So uh, this guy uh, gave a really good quote, uh, this uh, Christian uh, writer. A God without wrath brought me without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without the cross. See, when you only take out all the good stuff, uh, sorry, take out all the bad stuff and you're left with only good stuff, then you, you take out the cross, you take out judgment, you take out uh, sin. See, those are all the things which are the bitter things. And I think that that's one of the problems that you go to a lot of prosperity gospel or you know, the new sort of preaching churches and what they preach, they call donut sermons. You know what a donut is? You know, donuts are those unhealthy round things, right? Which uh, are made of flour and sugar and uh, basically have no nutritional value at all for you. Okay? But they preach what they call donut sermons because basically, if you go to many churches, they, they say that, okay, you have a hole in you, like a donut. You know, all donuts have a hole, right? 
And God wants to fill up that hole in you. So they say, you know, maybe the hole in your life is that you're a lonely person. Well, God will make you have lots of friends. Or maybe he says, oh, maybe the hole in your life is that you're poor. Well, God will bless you and make you rich. Or maybe the hole in your life is that you lack purpose in your life. God will give you a purpose. See, those are meaningless messages because it is not what the angel tells John to preach in the little scroll. Because it doesn't talk about Jesus. It doesn't talk about forgiveness. It doesn't talk about judgment. It doesn't talk about sin and hell. But we must always remember that unless we tell people the bitter part, we can never tell them the sweet part. So not too, uh, just a few weeks ago, I was talking to a relative, and I've been trying to share the gospel with him for many years, and um, we just talked very generally, but finally, I said to him, I said, look, you know, I have to tell you the truth, you know, if you keep going along this line, if you keep thinking this way, and you keep living this way, God will judge you, and you will go to hell. And uh, I think I shocked my relative a bit, because... Uh, all along I've been not talking like this, right? But I had to tell him the truth, right? That, you know, it is not loving of me if I just keep saying, yeah, 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 you know, keep thinking about it, keep thinking about it. Because ultimately, this person has to realize that this is what the bitter news of the gospel is. If you, if you keep pushing away Jesus, then there is only judgment in hell. And that's why John keeps, is told that he must keep prophesying this to the nations, to the peoples, to the languages, and to the kings. Now, it's very important to understand that this is the big idea of what John is to do. Preach the little scroll, right? Preach the the gospel. Because now we come to the very difficult chapter 11. And uh, if you've had trouble concentrating now, then chapter 11 will be a great challenge to you. And I pray that uh, the Holy Spirit will help you to really concentrate because uh, this passage is really difficult. But if you can understand it and grasp it, there is a great message in it. So the first part about John preaching the little scroll. Now, second section begins in a very strange way, right? It says that John was given a reed as a measuring rod and told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshippers there. Now, what does it mean? Okay? Now, uh, he wasn't... Okay, I don't have a little reed, but I have this uh, measuring tape, okay? Now, when you see this, what do you think? Okay, you don't think of Pua Kang or something, right? Okay? But, but what does it mean? Why, why is he given a reed or like a measuring tape to measure the temple? Now, first of all, it's not renovation, okay? It's not renovation. Because we are very confident that um, Revelation was written between 90 to 100 AD, but we know that the temple of that day was destroyed in 70 AD by the, the Romans. So he's not physically going to take a long thing and measure the temple because the temple is not there anymore. Does it mean rebuilding or reconstruction of the temple? Uh, Probably not also because the book of Hebrews tells us that there is no longer a need for the temple. There is no longer a need for sacrifices because... It's very clear in the book of Hebrews that Jesus has come to do away with the temple and the sacrifices. So what is measuring the temple? If the temple is not there anymore, what is the temple that he's supposed to measure? Well, in, uh, in the book of Revelation, and also in other parts of the Bible, the temple can also refer to the people of God. 
Okay, so, so we, we are the temple of God here. Uh, not this building, 19F Charlton Lane, but you and I are like the, the building bricks of the temple of God. So you look up here in the references. Okay? To the church in Philadelphia, Jesus said, Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. So, if the temple is symbolic, then what is measuring the temple? Because, I, I mean, I, I, does that mean I come around and, and measure how fat you are? Or how tall you are? Or put a big measuring tape around you? No, you see, in the Old Testament, the idea of measuring is also the idea of protection. See, if I measure you, I measure the temple, is a, is a picture of me, you know, seeing how, how many you are and, and how God is going to protect you. The same idea is found in Zechariah chapter 2. And remember, we said that uh, the Old Testament also helps us understand the book of Revelation. So if you look up here, right, Zechariah chapter 2, look at what it says. Uh, then I looked up, and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I asked, where are you going? He answered, to measure Jerusalem and to find out how wide and long it is. Then the angel who was speaking to me left. And another angel came to meet him and said to me, Run and tell that young man, Jerusalem will be, will, will be a city without walls because a great number of men and livestock in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. So if you see this passage up here, look, look up here, right, you'll see that the measuring symbolizes God's protection over Jerusalem. And that was what he's basically saying. He's saying, look, measure the temple, measure the people, as a sign of my protection over it. Now the confusing part comes because, if you look up here in the slide, right, uh, this is the temple of God, it is a scale model, okay, and uh, he says just measure the inner court. Right, if, if you look, look at the passage, it says measure only the inner court. Okay, because outside here, he is given over to the Gentiles for trampling. Okay, so the next slide. So here, you know, it's all trampling. Here, it's all measured and protected. Okay? Now, what does it mean? Again, in your Bible study groups, you, you would be discussing it, and uh, there are many different ideas. Uh. Some people say uh, that, uh, okay, this is the Jewish area, this is the Gentile area, right? So, in the Old Testament, again, the Jews are God's people, the Gentiles represent uh, the non-God people. So here, God is protecting His own people, but outside, uh, these are all uh, the unprotected people, they are all going to be trampled on. Some people say that the whole temple is God's people, so God only protects some of the people, but some of the others uh, will get trampled on. Okay, um, and there are many variations to it. Some other people say, oh, here is the true church, and here are the people who, um, in chapter 2 and 3, you know, God says, Oh, you know, you believe the wrong thing, you commit sexual immorality, so God allows them to be all trampled on. Okay, so there are many ways of, uh, of thinking about it. I could spend the next hour just telling you about it, but that wouldn't really help. But by and large, as you understand this picture, it just shows that God is saying the church is being protected in a time where there is persecution and where there is opposition and where 
the outside world is going to be trampling uh, around or trampling around Christians. And basically, basically what it's saying is that we live in a time where we live in a danger zone, a war zone. And uh, God is going to protect His people, probably not physically, but in a spiritual way. But then the, the picture even becomes more confusing that because in the midst of this danger zone, this war zone, we introduce to these two witnesses. And it says there in verse 3, I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. And these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now who on earth are these two people? Right? It's confusing enough we have this temple being measured. But now, next slide, we have... Hey, oh, that's cool. Huh? I didn't realize that it works. Okay. Um, okay, you have these two witnesses, right? But these two witnesses at the same time said to be olive trees and lamps. Lampstand, sorry. Okay, this is not what the real lampstand looks like in the temple. I, I, this is the closest picture I could get in the clip art. Okay, it's Microsoft's fault. Now, who are these two, uh, two witnesses? Is it Billy Graham and someone else? Or is it Martin Luther and John Calvin? Who are these people, right? Now, I don't think that these two witnesses are real uh, people. I think, again, because the whole image is symbolic, it represents something. Because it says that these two witnesses are also like two lampstands. Now, in the whole of Revelation, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, it keeps saying that the churches are the lampstands. Okay? The church is the lampstand. It represents the church. And you see, in the olden days, uh, lampstand is not run by electricity, okay? Okay, it's not a fluorescent light. Lampstand needs oil. And where do you get the oil? Olive tree. See, now it's all making sense, right? So when you have the olive tree, that means you have a perpetual supply of oil for the lampstand which goes on and on and on. So I think what he's trying to say is, during this time of persecution, opposition, a danger zone for the church, uh, the church itself continues to be a lampstand, right? We are the church, which witnesses to the world about God. Right? We are like John, except John had his little scroll, but we continue to do the work of John, even when John is dead and buried 2,000 years ago. And that's why I said the picture is linked, you see? Because John was told to keep preaching the, the bitter and the sweet news of the scroll, but he can't preach forever and ever because he doesn't live forever and ever, he dies. But we, the church, in those days and all the way now, represented by the lampstand, continues to be a witness to Jesus even today. Now people ask, well, why are there two witnesses? Why are there not one lampstand? Well, you see, in the olden days, in the court of law, you, to, to have an effective uh, court or trial, you needed two witnesses. So for, uh, in the olden days, so next slide, whenever you thought of witnesses in the, the Old Testament or in Jewish times, you always thought of two witnesses. You know, those were the days before CSI and CCTV. Okay? So, it says that in Deuteronomy chapter 19, under the law, one witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offense he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So, it's not appropriate in, those, in that culture to have one witness. You always have two witnesses. So you imagine, like, uh, let's say I saw, uh, I, see, I saw someone here, 
oh, I can't choose anybody. Alright, but let's say I choose someone, I say, oh, I saw someone do something wrong. It's not enough that I said it. I need to have someone else see that person do something wrong. And that's why in Jesus' time, uh, he always sent out his disciples two by two. Right, because it's not because uh, they were in some training course where one, one uh, apostle would train the other, no. But because both of them could be witnesses to Jesus when they went out into the countryside. So what is happening here? What is the big idea? Okay, remember I said it's linked together? John was given a little scroll and he was told to preach and prophesy about it till the seven trumpet blew. The church, uh, through the two witnesses, lives in a time of trampling, right, of opposition and persecution, but they are told to also go and be witnesses into the world. But it's going to be a difficult time, isn't it? Because if you look at verse 2 and verse 3, it says that uh, the, the Gentiles who represent the non-believers will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And the two witnesses will, will prophesy for 1,260 days. Now, again, all these numbers make life very difficult for us. Okay? But 42 months is 1,260 days. Alright, you can work it out yourself. And also, it represents three and a half years, which we, we, we read about earlier, and we, we'll keep reading about later. Okay, three and a half is very important. So three and a half, 42, 1,060 days, they're all the same thing. But what do they mean? Does that mean that literally, people will be stepping on us for 1,260 days, and that we will only prophesy for 1,260 days? Well, that must be pretty good, right? Because if I don't live in that three and a half years, I don't, have to, I don't have to be witnesses at all. But I don't think so, you see, because remember, we always say that in the book of Revelation, numbers are very important. Okay? Numbers are very important. I'm nearly finished here, so you just hold on a second, right? Numbers are very important. So seven was, represents completeness or fulfillment. Okay? It's the, it's the perfect completion of everything. Now, what is half of seven? Three and a half, right? So, three and a half represents a time which is interrupted. A time which is long, but it's not for forever. It is not eternal. So, someone was telling me, you know in Western countries, sometimes you go to, if you ever have a chance, but not that you will, but if you, you know, because if you go on tours, you never go to, uh, you never go to cemeteries. But if you go to cemeteries, apparently, when you go to the cemetery, sometimes you see these tombstones, but they are cut in half. Because they're cut in half. And apparently, why this happens is, if, the child, if someone died very young, or a child died, instead of having a full tombstone, they will have a cut-off tombstone to represent that this person's life was cut short. And I think that's what three and a half represents, that it is a time which is not complete. It is a time which is cut short. And I think that this is very important for us as an encouragement, because if we live in a time of opposition or persecution, we need to know that it will not last forever, it will not be eternal, but God will cut short the time that we actually face hardship in this world as Christians. But in verse 7 to 10, there is more bad news, right? Because we see that uh, in verse, uh, uh, verse 7 onwards, the beast comes and he kills the two witnesses 
And that means that he, you know, the church at some stage is destroyed, or really defeated. And the whole world is celebrating. They're like uh, giving each other gifts, they're patting each other on the back, jumping on the streets. And this picture is a very extreme picture of celebration. It is like when you think of uh, the end of World War II, and everybody goes on the streets and starts kissing and hugging one another. Or like in Singapore, you know, when the Japanese surrender, everybody comes onto the, the, the streets and there's great joy. Well, that's what the Bible says uh, people will react when Christians and the church uh, seem to be you know, defeated in this world, seem to be put, you know, put down in this world. But why are they so happy, right? Why, why are people so happy when Christians and the church are diminished or killed off? Well, it says there in verse uh, 10, because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. Okay, the word tormented here literally means torture. Okay, that means that the church or the witnessing of the church is tormenting and torture for people. Um, now, some people say that maybe the tormenting and torture here is because uh, the two prophets have power to breathe fire or to bring drought. Okay, But I think most commentators say that part of the torture also is because of the faithful preaching of the bitter part of the scroll. Now, why do I say that? Well, the first thing is in verse 3, and this is why you need a Bible. Right? In verse 3, it says that they were clothed in sackcloth while they preached. Uh, sackcloth is not business suit, okay? Sackcloth represents preaching of repentance, uh, judgment, doom. Okay, it is, it is what people in the Old Testament used to wear when things were really bad, when they felt sad and sorry. Uh, you wear sackcloth when your youngest child dies, that sort of idea, right? So they're preaching bad news. But then in verse 5 and 6, uh, it says here that these witnesses... Uh, if anybody tries to harm them, they can breathe fire out of their mouth and they can call drought from the sky and they can call plagues, right? Now, I don't think uh, this is a literal thing again because, you know, imagine this, this would be really cool, right? So you're walking down the street, you're trying to evangelize people, okay, you give me a hard time and I, you know, turn the flamethrower from my mouth and you're, and you're gone, right? And then uh, some other people, okay, you don't want to believe what I said? Okay, fine. Okay, no water for you for the rest of your life. Okay, that's great, right? No, I don't think that's what I'm trying to say. You see, I think for the, 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 pers- the person who understands the Bible reading this, uh, the fire and the drought and plagues remind uh, the, 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 the person who's familiar with the Bible of two prophets in the past. Okay, Elijah and Moses. See, Elijah, uh, he called down fire from heaven to destroy, uh, not to destroy, to, to burn up. Uh, the, the sacrifices and offerings. Moses, he, he called down drought, right? Uh, Elijah also called down drought, uh, uh, drought as well. No, sorry. Elijah called down drought. Moses called down the plague, sorry. Okay? Now, both Elijah and Moses, they were prophesying against a sinful society. Uh, Elijah was preaching against uh, the people who worship Baal and against a, a, a society where sexual immorality was, was very common. Uh, Moses was preaching against Egypt and Pharaoh, which was rebelling against God and re- refusing to accept God. And I think that's what, that's what it's saying here, is that 
when people preach like Elijah and Moses, it is torture and tormenting for them because it is, they're actually rebelling against God. It is torture and tormenting because you're telling to them, the way you live will lead to hell. The way you live is against God's will. If you rebel against God, there will be hell. And this is tormenting and torture for them. And that's why when they stop hearing all this news, they, they rejoice. They're happy. You see, the world is symbolized uh, by three things. Okay, In verse 8, eight their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Now, uh, this great city is described in three ways. And uh, the three ways represent uh, why this message is so terrible to hear for them. Now, we all know Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Uh, in fact, the word sodomy comes from the word Sodom, right? It's, it's a, so Sodom, when you think of Sodom, you think of sexual morality, sin, wickedness, pleasure of the flesh. Okay, so the world is representative of this great city like Sodom. You know, the world likes immorality, the world likes sin, the world likes pleasure of the flesh. The world is like Egypt, this great city. But Egypt was a place which rebelled against God. Actually, Egypt is not a city. Egypt is a country, right? But Egypt itself rebelled against God and, and enslaved God's people. But the last thing it also says is that this is also a place where their Lord was crucified, which was where? Where was Jesus crucified? Jerusalem. And I think that Jerusalem is a place where it's a supposedly holy city, but behind its holiness and religiosity, it also rejects God. So, if you preach like Elijah and Moses against a place which loves immorality, which hates God, which has his own spirituality but rejects the rule of God, then it will, it will find that preaching torture, right? It will be tormenting. So I was just reading last week uh, in the newspaper that in Australia, uh, there is uh, this woman called Penny Wong. Okay, she is uh, the first Asian uh, woman minister okay, in the cabinet in Australia. But she's also a lesbian. And uh, she has a lesbian partner. And it was, she was in the news because her lesbian partner is expecting her first child through in vitro fertilization. Okay, so uh, she, she's an Asian woman in a lesbian relationship uh, expecting a child in a, with a partner. Now, imagine if I went there as a Christian and I you know, somehow managed to get in the newspaper and I said, oh, this is sinful and wrong. Right? And... Uh, you know, it's godless, it's a rejection of God's rule and plan for life. And worst of all, God will judge uh, Penny Wong and her partner and they will go to hell. Now, imagine what the Sydney Morning Herald will say in response to what I said. I mean, they will say, oh, this terrible guy, right? It's so politically incorrect. Now, what do you think the Australian public will respond because the Australian public, apparently the majority of them in surveys, support uh, homosexual marriage. So imagine if I went there and I started preaching from my soapbox at the corner of the road. Will the Australian public find that music to their ears? No, right? They will, they will find it uh, very, a bitter, painful, tormenting, torturing message. And if uh, something were to happen to me, well, they will be very happy 
that I went away because they wouldn't have to hear this, uh, what they obviously feel is nonsense to them. And I think that that's exactly what this passage is about, isn't it? Because the church is preaching this terrible, painful message for the world, so when they can't, don't have to hear all this message anymore, they will celebrate. And I think that that's why whenever you hear Christians uh, who um, you know, fall, or there's something wrong with the church, or you read that the church is growing smaller and smaller, the newspapers are always gloating and very happy about reading how Christians are doing really badly. Right? So I even remember when the Norway killer guy first came along, the first thing you read was, Christian fundamentalist right, kills all these people. But, but in what sense is he a Christian fundamentalist? Uh, I mean, why is he a Christian fundamentalist? Does he go to church very often, theological college or something? No, right? But it's just, it's really great if they can put down Christians, right? And that's, that's what the passage is saying, that we live in this three and a half years, a time where the world is opposed to the church. And I think that's so important for us, we can understand the times that we live in. Because if we understand the times that we live in, then we understand why is it the gospel is so hard for people to accept. Why is it the world hates the gospel? Uh, why is it uh, faithful Christians uh, are despised in the world? And why is it Christians in many parts of the world still die? Like in Africa or the Middle East or even in China? Because we live in a time where God has actually allowed the trampling of His people, but He will protect them spiritually. But, the message for John, as the same, same message for us as the lampstand and the churches is, we must keep preaching. We must keep witnessing for God. Because the great temptation is, as we hear of trampling, as we feel opposition, what is our natural instinct? It is to keep quiet. It is to be silent. But, now is the time, the three and a half years is the time where we are to be the witness in the world. We are to be the two witnesses in the world, even to the point of death. Okay, like uh, one, uh, one pastor said, now is not the time to be playing computer games. Okay? So John Piper was uh, talking about this couple. Uh, this woman told me about it just a, uh, a few weeks ago. John Piper gave this illustration which really stuck in her head. She didn't know where she heard it from. But she was talking about this old couple who retired uh, and went to their dream home by the beach in America. And every day they walk on the beach and they collect really beautiful seashells. I think John Piper was saying, you know, what will they do when Jesus comes again? Will they present to Jesus their wonderful collection of seashells? Because that's not the role that we are to have in this world today as Christians. We are not to collect seashells and give to God our collection of seashells. Our role in the world today is to be those witnesses to preach the bitter and also the sweet message of the gospel. So, in the last section, uh, verse 11, it talks about how uh, the seventh trumpet is blown, right? And, and I won't go through uh, the whole of this section, but I just want to focus on the last part. It says that, you know, God comes and His power reigns. That means He rules over the earth. His kingdom has come. You know, you pray the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. Well, on the last day, God's kingdom comes. And this is the outcome. Next slide. Right? It says that the nations were angry, so they are angry at God because they don't want to be ruled by God. But God's anger and wrath comes and it's a time for judging everyone. 
Okay, and the last part says that uh, it will destroy those who are destroying the earth. That means destroying, not as in physically going about bashing it up, but they're destroying God's earth. They are like uh, destroying His His creation, His way of life. So that means that uh, on one hand, God's judgment will come, but but there will also be the good news, right? The sweet news, because it will be a time of rewarding His servants and prophets and the saints who reverence uh, His name, both small and great. Now, the word here, reward, doesn't mean that you can work your way up to heaven. The reward is for those who have persevered in the trials and difficulty of life. It's like they're rewarded because they've hung on to the gospel. So I think that as we look at the very end, the lesson for us is, if, if God's trumpet, the seventh trumpet, is really coming, then we must get ready, isn't it? We must get ready, because if there are only two eternal outcomes, which outcome do you want, the yellow or the white? For me, it's very simple, straightforward. I like white, okay? I'll go with white. Because this is the reality of God's coming, right? It is not a goal 90 FM, all good stuff, only good news. Right, this is the real news. That on the last day there will be judgment where God will say, you know, I'm very sorry for you, but I'm angry at you. Or He'll say to you, great to have you, you know, come in, my child, because you belong to Jesus. Now when the seventh trumpet blows, it is too late for us to decide, right? We can't decide when God comes, you know. It's like we decide now. And on that day when, when God comes, it doesn't matter what your IQ is or your EQ. It doesn't matter what the size of your bank balances or your stock portfolio or what school you went to or what size house, how many square feet your house is or how fast your car is, right? But it's whether you responded to the gospel, right? To that little scroll. Whether you've accepted the sweet part or whether you've gone and found it bitter. Because people say, you know, uh, some people say, you know, life on earth is hell, right? But actually, life in hell is much worse. Okay, and when you come to that last day, it is too late to make a, another decision. It is hell. You're on hell. You are being judged. So, like the principal of my theological college says, you know, the, when you live this life, we must make the last things first. If you know that God is going to blow that seventh trumpet, you got to make what happens then the first thing in your life. Now you have to live right before Him. He so said the most, the main problem that he sees in life. Uh, is that people only think about what happens this weekend, or this year, or maybe the year after. But he says, if you know what's going to happen right at the very end, then you should be right with God now, because you never know when that seventh trumpet is going to come. But for us who live as Christians as well, I think it's very important for us to know uh, that we have to keep witnessing even though it's difficult. Even if you face rejection, persecution, uh, hard times, even death, what is your role in life? What is my role in life? It is to be a witness for Jesus. It is to preach that little scroll, whether it's sweet or bitter, we've got to preach it faithfully. Now, uh, not too long ago, I was sharing with someone in, uh, in the gym, and uh, you know me, like, right, I'm, not, I'm not a very pushy, sort of obnoxious person. At least I, I hope I'm not a pushy, obnoxious person. So, um, I was sharing with this person, Hopefully, in a, I wasn't very pushy or obnoxious. I was just talking in a normal voice, right? I didn't say, repent or you go to hell, right? But, but I was sharing him in a very, quite a normal way. And I'm not sure what I said to him. But obviously, he didn't quite like it because a few weeks later, when I saw him, 
he saw me, and when he saw me, he quickly turned away and covered his face and walked out somewhere else. Right? Now, um, I don't think it's because of, uh, oh, you know, maybe I didn't have uh, my, my, my deodorant or something. I don't know. But, 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 you know, it's like, I think that when, when I read this passage, then I see that, well, it is not to be unexpected, isn't it? Because the world finds the message really quite bitter in, in some ways. Because it's so challenging, it requires you to change, to give up. Maybe sins that you really treasure and love. Uh, it speaks to you of, in so absolute terms. You give up your life, all or nothing. It, it talks about eternity and not just this life. But, but it's a message that, this, that you really need to hear and the world needs to hear. And the problem is, you don't really have a choice. If you choose to be a Christian, if you choose... God is Lord and Jesus is your Savior, then that's what He's telling you to do, isn't it? Because the purpose for your life and my life ultimately is not really important to God, whether you're a doctor or engineer, or maybe not so important um, whether you stay single or married. But the purpose in your life right now, according to this passage, is you've got to be a witness to God. Yes, you might get trampled on. Yes, you might get stamped on. You might have a size 7 on your face. But, but you still have to be a witness for God because seven trumpets is coming and between that time, that three and a half years, that is what God wants us to do and we have to persevere in it. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving and heavenly Father, as we come before you today, we really pray that you will help us to recognize the times that we live in, that we will see that the world uh, may find our message not the fragrance of life but the aroma of death that it may not find it sweet as honey but bitter and sour but yet let us be faithful in preaching your message let us be witnesses to you uh, and let us do so faithfully before you dear father as we know the times that we live in all the more help us to be ready for the day of the seventh trumpet, for when the rule, your rule comes, there will be two eternal destinations for the whole of mankind. And we pray that we will always hold on to Jesus and hold and trust on the blood that washes us clean so that we may truly be confident and rejoice when Jesus comes again on that last day. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.